0: Good morning. There's, uh, there's a privilege that comes with preaching God's Word, and uh, so every Sunday that I, I get that chance, I, you know, it's, it's certainly humbling. There's certain passages that uh, you come to uh, where you feel somewhat unworthy, um, and, and that's, that's a passage we have in front of us. In fact, the last few passages have been like that for me. But I do trust that the Lord will edify us Uh, in this series that we're in. uh, We have the Great Commission before us here this morning. So turn to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to read verses 16 through 20 in just a few moments. We're in week three of our sermon series called Who is Faith Church? We've talked already about what it looks like to relate to God individually and as a church family. We've talked about last week what it means to relate to each other, called to love each other deeply, and how that kind of Displays God to those around us. And today we're going to talk about what it looks like for us, for Christians, for the church to relate to the world. What is the mission of the church? I want to allow that question to kind of linger in your minds and hearts for a minute. And at least internally and maybe in your notes, I want you to jot down what would your response to that question be? What is the mission of the church? Today, Christians offer up a host of different answers. You might say, well, glorifying God or loving people or doing social justice uh, or kind of kingdom work in general. There was a time when mission referred to Christians being sent out cross-culturally to convert non-Christians and plant churches. But friends, now mission is understood to be much broader. And so, environmental stewardship is mission, and community renewal is mission, and blessing our neighbors is mission. Now, all of these things, I hope you and I would say these are good things. Christians need to be involved in these things, but is this, are these things, the mission of the church? Stephen Neal says, if everything is mission, nothing is mission. Interesting. Interesting. Now, why is he saying this? Well, mission implies being sent, and it implies being given a particular task. I put out my Michigan flag yesterday as college football season started, you know, and I'm sure some of you are doing the same, different colors, different schools. College football teams, for the last several weeks, they've been working really hard. They're sent to the football field with a particular task this fall, which is to win games, to win championships, right? Right? Ethan Hunt from Mission Impossible is sent to do a particular mission if he chooses to accept. John Stott, the great evangelical, helpfully argues that the mission of the church is not everything the church does, nor is it everything individual Christians do. Rather, it is everything the church is sent into the world to do. I think that's right. Right? Individual Christians are called to do a host of things, right? We, we're called to work faithfully at your, you know, our jobs and take care of our lawns and feed our kids and love our spouses and fight for justice in our region and so forth. But local churches have a specific, narrow mandate given to us by the Lord. There's a distinction between the church as institution and the church in terms of made up of individual Christians, The church is an institution. The local church is called to a narrower mission than individual Christians. That's what we're going to talk about today. What is the mission of Faith Church? We are worshiping people. We are loving people. We are also a disciple-making people. I want you to look at your bulletin. Flip open your bulletin. If you have that, you'll see it. I think it's on the right side on the back page. You'll see the mission of Faith Church. And I was supposed to bring up a bulletin so I can read it to you, but I don't have it. But I'm the lead pastor, so you think I'd know it. <laughs> the mission of Faith Church is to do what? Somebody say it. Oh, here we go. Thanks, brother. Help, help out a brother. I like that. The mission of Faith Church is to make more and better disciples here and around the world. That's a really good summary, I think, of what we are called to do. Let me read the passage, and I'm going to give you the main point after that, okay? Hear God's Word, Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 16. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, "'All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth.'" Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Here's the main point of the passage. I trust it's the main point of this sermon as well. Our mission is to exercise Jesus' authority on earth by making disciples and planting churches from all nations. I'll say it again. Our mission is to exercise Jesus' authority on earth by making disciples and planting churches from all nations. If you're wondering what Faith Church is all about, this is what Faith Church ought to be all about. And I want to give you three aspects of our mission from this passage. Here's the first aspect. We want to be a people who are trusting his authority. We want to be a people who are trusting his authority. Of course, we're at the end of Matthew's gospel. These are the last verses of Matthew's gospel. So Jesus has lived a glorious life. He's been teaching and healing. He's died a brutal death for sinners. He's been raised to new life. So he's alive and he's about to ascend into heaven. But before he leaves, he draws his disciples up on this mountain, and he's got some things to tell them. And I want you to notice that as they come up the mountain, they see Jesus. And notice how they respond to the resurrected Jesus. They worship and they doubt. Literally, that word doubt means hesitate. They worship and then they hesitate. Now, what does that mean that they hesitate? It's it's kind of difficult to say with great confidence, but we have to remember the shock of what has just happened. One minute, Jesus is dead and he's entombed. Very shocking for these disciples. A few days later, he's alive. Too much has happened too fast for them to be able to assimilate all of the information. So they worship, yes, but they also hesitate. I love the description of verse 18. Jesus came near and said to them. Jesus saw them from perhaps a short distance. He could see their faces, but he could also read their hearts. And he saw the mixed emotions, the desire to worship, yes, but also the temptation to fear. So much like us, right? We behold Jesus. We behold our lives. And what comes from us is often something mixed. Joy and fear, hope, and doubt, worship, and hesitation. But Jesus, notice what he does. He he draws near. He gives us a word of assurance. He's not annoyed with us. He's not irritated with our mixed emotions. He works with those of us who have incomplete, immature faith. And for these disciples, his word of assurance, notice in verse 18, is this. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, wait a second. I thought Jesus was the Son of God, right? Hasn't he always had supreme authority as the second person of the Godhead? Well, yes, but he veiled that authority before the resurrection. Uh, but since the resurrection, things are different. Listen to Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Paul says... Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection. And so Jesus' authority is now more public, post-resurrection. It encompasses a wider sphere, not only heaven, but now earth. This reminds me of the passage that Karen read just a few minutes ago, Daniel's vision in chapter 7. There came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days. That's God the Father. And to Him, and to this Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that, now hear me, all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. And His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. Friends, this is just stunning, isn't it? Maybe for you and me, the cosmic authority of Jesus is just kind of second nature to us. We can casually sing and clap. He's got the whole world in his hands. And then we kind of roll over and think, okay, are the Bengals playing today? But friends, do we stop and ponder deeply what we've just sang this morning? The mind-numbing, heart-warming notion that this Jesus has all-encompassing irreversible, irresistible authority. And his kingship is not only everlasting, but it is utterly benevolent. We serve an eternal king, but he's also a good king. Wow. I want you to notice that this is really a word of assurance for these disciples and for us today. How so? Well, they've got a big-time mission, don't they? It's no small thing as we will soon see. It's quite overwhelming, in fact. And why is this mission important? How are they going to accomplish this mission? They need to have this vision of Jesus having all authority over not just heaven, but also earth, the place that they are. And so when Jesus says, I have all authority, it's not just a statement of fact, friends. It's a statement of worship. He's after more subjects. He's after more worshipers. I want you to listen to John Piper. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate. Not missions because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. So when the disciples say, uh, I'm sorry, when Jesus says to his disciples, I have all authority, just before he says, make disciples, what he's saying is, I want more subjects. I want more worshipers. So friends, worship is the goal of missions. But I also want you to see that worship is the means of missions as well. You know, this statement, I have authority, I have all authority, would be deeply encouraging to these disciples. It would, it would give them great confidence as they go out to find more subjects and more worshipers. Worship fuels us as we're on mission. Well, how so? Well, let me kind of unpack this for you a little bit. So I want you to listen closely. If Jesus has all authority, then he knows precisely who are his sheep. He knows who will walk into the sheep pen, who, who will listen to his voice. He knows their name because he chose them, according to Ephesians chapter 1, before the foundation of the world. Now, we don't know. We don't know those names, but King Jesus, who has all authority, he knows. And this should produce tremendous confidence in us, Right? It's not your ministerial prowess or your theological sophistication or your apologetics training or your crafty articulation or strategic thinking or sparkling personality that brings people into Christ's kingdom. We are simple conduits. We don't know who are His, but He does. And so we sow the seed of the gospel promiscuously. (laughs) We just throw the seed out there and we'll see what happens. This is so freeing for us, isn't it? Listen, friends, a strong belief in God's sovereignty doesn't dampen evangelism. It ignites it. It's the white hot fuel that keeps a missionary on the field when there seems to be no harvest. It's the fire in the belly that keeps you and me praying for our neighbor friend even when they pull away. Paul once said to Timothy, this is interesting, 2 Timothy chapter 2, he said, I endure everything. I endure everything, Paul, the missionary, the apostle. I endure endure everything for the sake of the elect. Isn't that interesting? I mean, what hope do we have for the hard-hearted in this world? Isn't it that Jesus, who has all authority, can actually save them? Isn't it that Jesus has elected sheep out there, wandering though they now may be? who will hear his voice when we open up our mouths with his words. You know, I can think of a woman that I met um, in Kuwait in March, Kuwait City. Her name's Sunithra. Sinithra. She tells a story about herself and her family and all these other Christians in Kuwait City who for many, many years are just kind of wandering around trying to to find a church that's going to preach the gospel. And they're running into all these churches that were not proclaiming Christ and opening up God's word. And they're kind of, they have all these different agendas. And they're trying to hear uh, Jesus' voice. One of our missionaries, Blaine Boyd, planted a church there, as you probably know. And and Sunithra, she told me this after the worship service. She said, when Blaine came, we gathered around the word. We began to hear the voice of Jesus the shepherd. And God began to build his church. Why would Blaine take his young family, his two little kids, over to Kuwait City? How can you and I here in the U.S. keep going as as this country seems to be pressing in against Christians at times and, and kind of, you know, really making things difficult, especially as we get into issues of morality and ethics? How can we keep on going? Well, we trust that Jesus is king. That's how. And so we speak his words on his behalf, seeking out the sheep who will hear him. That's the first thing I want to point out to you is we want to trust his authority. The second thing I want to point out, I'm going to spend the bulk of our time on this point. We want to obey his call. We want to obey his call. Let's look at verses 19 and 20. Jesus says, go therefore in light of my authority, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the father and the son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. So here we are, right at the heart of the Great Commission. You've probably heard this before if you've maybe grown up in the church. And I want to look at this passage kind of at two levels, first zoomed in and then zoomed out. So we're going to start by looking at the granular. We're going to back up a little bit and look at the big picture, okay? Now, if you study this passage, you probably heard that the main verb, the main command is make disciples. So if you've got a little pencil, you can, you know, underline in your Bibles that, command, or circle it. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And surrounding this main exhortation are three participles. First one's going, and then you'll see baptizing, and the third one is teaching. And those three participles explain what making disciples means. And so, it's essentially saying, Jesus is saying, we make disciples by going, by baptizing, and by teaching. You know, so often when you hear Great Commission uh, sermons, the emphasis is on one of those to the detriment of the others. So it's the the go-to-the-world sermon, or it's the baptize-and-evangelize sermon, or it's the hey-don't-forget-to-teach-them-to-obey sermon. And those are all good sermons. (laughs) You know, we need to hear those sermons. But Jesus has something more overarching in mind. He says, make disciples. That's primarily what he's interested in. He has all authority and he wants more kingdom subjects. He has some particular people in mind already. He just needs his disciples and us today to go get them. What is a disciple? Let's define that quickly it's a follower of Jesus, a regenerated Christian, one of his sheep. So, what then does it mean to make disciples? It means very simply to help someone become a disciple of Jesus and to help someone grow as a disciple of Jesus. Does that make sense? Okay, what does it mean to make disciples? It means to help someone become a disciple, come on into the sheep pen, and then grow up as a disciple, okay? It involves, in other words, both evangelism as well as discipleship. Those are two halves of disciple making. So I want to consider quickly these three participles. The first one is uh, making disciples, first of all, involves going, going. This is the idea of breaking new spiritual ground. So, for these disciples, they had a whole wide world in front of them. It would be no good if they just kind of, you know, circled the wagons in Jerusalem. Now, where would they go? Well, we learn in Acts chapter 1, they would start in Jerusalem and then Judea, which is kind of like Ohio and, you know, Cincinnati and then Ohio, and then Samaria, which is a bunch of weirdos up, up north, you know, so that, that state up north, you know, you've got to go up there too. And then also to the ends of the Roman world. And notice Jesus says, make disciples of every nation. One scholar called this audacious internationalism. Jesus is predicting that Christianity would be a worldwide religion, and indeed it is. Jesus has made the world his parish. So for us today, this means we should be interested in seeing the gospel penetrate new unreached ethnic groups. Those are particular people groups with little or no access to the gospel. And most kind of experts, missiologists, say there are about 5,000 unreached people groups right now. That number kind of shifts, as you would imagine. So of the 8 billion people of our planet, about 3 billion of them live within an unreached people group. So, friends, the job is not done, is it? The world will not merely come to us like the magi came to Jesus. We are to take this mission forward. Any church that is worth its salt and light Is a missions giving, missions sending, missions praying, and oh, for a thousand tongues singing church. And thankfully, I can say, Faith Church, that's who we are. I'm so grateful for that. But listen, friends, we can also grow in this manner. So I want you to be thinking about that. Be thankful to the Lord for how he has shaped Faith Church around this great commission. There are ways that we can grow as well. Now, going might mean literally going overseas or supporting efforts to go overseas. It also might mean crossing the street and talking to your non-Christian neighbor. It might mean crossing the comfort barrier and sharing the gospel boldly with an office mate or even your dad. So, go means something for missionaries, certainly, but I think this means something for all Christians. Jesus' kingdom grows not only through the geographical expansion of the nation's but through the chronological expansions of the generations. So we must be concerned about pressing the gospel, proclaiming Christ, calling for new disciples from every ethnic group. But we also must be concerned about pressing the gospel, pleading with people, calling for new disciples from every generation within every nation. This means really practically, this should give dignity to the things that are right in front of you. Who am I talking about? I'm talking about your kids. I'm talking about your grandkids. I'm talking about Gen Z. It is extremely strategic for us to be thoughtful about how we can reach the next generation. And some, some of those folks are right in your own homes. You know, it's interesting. What keeps us from going, whether that's overseas or across the street or across the living room, what keeps us from going, I'm going to say, are two C words. Okay, two C words. You're taking notes. You can write these two words down. The first one is complacency. And the other word is comfort. Complacency and comfort. We're complacent because we don't just recognize the urgency of our mission. And we've grown so accustomed to the creature comforts and kind of nice salaries and vacations that we enjoy. And by the way, God grants us these things. He's a good God. He wants us to enjoy these things. And yet we've often, often been lulled to sleep as we kind of walk through the humdrum of our daily lives. Have we forgotten, friends? that there are billions of people who need to know the Lord. Have we forgotten about the calm Tibetan people on the western side of China who, you know, they, they, they're, they're scaling mountains and they have very little access to the gospel? They are an unreached people group. Have we forgotten about them? Have we forgotten about some of our co-workers, even our children who are on the road to destruction? There are people in our lives. We don't have to conjure up you know, an a, a, a unreached people group that's overseas. There are people that God has placed in our lives who are right now, unfortunately, on the road to destruction, who will receive the judgment of God. They will get the sword. And there's a storm coming, and you know this, but let me just remind you, there is a storm coming, and, and the date of that storm, we don't know, but it is coming, and the only shelter from that storm, the only refuge, is Christ. Do we feel the urgency of these realities? That God is moving. He is moving locally. He is moving globally. His spirit is softening hearts and preparing men and women to come under the lordship of Christ. His gospel is unstoppable. All these things are true. But then why do we sometimes find ourselves asleep? When will we wake up, friends? This morning, I want to challenge you. Might there be someone here who the Lord wants to go overseas? Might there be someone here who God wants to be a pioneer missionary of some sorts to learn their language, to immerse themselves in a new culture, to plant a church? I'm thinking of Scott and Sherry Stober. This is what they've done in our church decades ago, sent them out to do this very work in Papua New Guinea. Or maybe it's to join an existing church where they need more gospel workers. And maybe you get a job and you raise your family and you're a faithful church member in an international city. Maybe you joyfully bless your adult kids and grandkids as they go. And that's part of your role. Features has a history of sending missionaries from within our doors. I've already mentioned the Stover's more recently, Linda Wick. Friends, might God want to send more? I mean, how cool would that be if in the next two years God sent more? Listen, friends, we have connections in East Asia. We have connections in other places. I've got friends who are pastoring right now churches in Abu Dhabi and Dubai, pastoring churches where 60-plus nations are represented, churches that are made up of the nations who are seeking to make disciples from all the nations as, as these transient people come into Dubai and, and, and they're disciple and they hear the gospel and then they're sent back into their countries five years later. They need mature Christians who will evangelize and disciple. And I just wonder, is there someone here? Is there some family here who's willing to go? I would love to help you. Our church would love to help you. It would be a sweet joy to send some of you. And what's one sign that you might be ready to go? Well, it's if you're a faithful church member and gospel worker right now. If you're regularly trusting God to break new spiritual ground here, you might be ready to trust God to break spiritual ground overseas. So something for you to consider. Think about that. The next participle, notice, is baptizing. We make disciples not only by going, by breaking new spiritual ground, but by baptizing. Baptizing, notice, in the name, in the one name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? One name, three persons. One God who exists eternally as three persons. So here we have the doctrine of the Trinity trickling into our ears, articulated for the first time in the New Testament by the second person of the Trinity, Jesus himself. And this commission to baptize shows that the apostles make disciples by calling converts to publicly identify with Jesus. I'm pointing at our baptism here, right? That's what we've seen people do. And we baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Isn't it interesting, friends, that according to Jesus, I'm just making an observation, okay? Isn't it interesting that according to Jesus, what church, uh, the the, the church ordinance that immediately follows conversion isn't the Lord's Supper, it's baptism. You see that? Baptism is like the wedding ceremony. It's a one-time thing. You don't get, you know, Shouldn't be getting married several times, right? I mean, you've got one ceremony with one person. That's kind of what God intended. It's a one time thing. But the Lord's Supper is kind of like the vow renewal ceremony. And so it would be strange to do the vow renewal ceremony before you do the wedding ceremony, right? And Jesus gets that. And that's why he says, hey, when you go make disciples, the first thing you need to do is baptize them. The Lord's Supper comes later. So just an observation from the text. And I'd commend that to you. Think about that. What does that mean for you? What does that mean for your family? The final participle, notice at the, uh, uh, the beginning of verse 20, is teaching. And notice it says, teaching them everything that I have commanded you. So we're at the end of Matthew. There's been 27 plus chapters of material. And if we understand that Jesus speaks through all the Bible, not just, you know, the red letters, by the Spirit, He speaks throughout the entire Bible Well, this whole book applies to to us, what we're trying to study and apply. Jesus is interested in far more than just making converts. He's interested in making disciples. Now, that word disciple is an educational term. Uh, We are to enroll people in the school of Jesus. We are to tutor them, meticulously mentor them day after day so they will mature into Christ. And so, yes... We want to boldly announce that King Jesus has died for sinners and urge people to repent. That's where the Great Commission begins, but it doesn't end there. Let's also be about the business of teaching people the deep things of God and loving theology in order to make disciples. You might be thinking, God, well, wait wait a second. Let's not just produce a bunch of Bible nerds. We need to get practical. And I would agree with you. We want to continue to be practical but we also don't want to diminish theological depth. We want to prize that. It's part of making disciples. Where do we see this concept of make disciples most clearly in the Scriptures? Isn't it in Jesus' life himself, right? He spent the majority of his time not with the crowds preaching to them, not with the religious elite confronting them. Most of his time was dedicated to his disciples, walking on the dusty road, loving them, teaching them, correcting them. That, friends, is our vision for disciple-making. The Word of God shaping men and women within life-on-life relationships. So what's your job as a disciple of Jesus? What's your job as a member of Faith Church to disciple like Jesus discipled? If you're taking notes, write that down. This is my job. This is what the Great Commission means for me, to disciple like Jesus discipled, to spend time with Christians and non-Christians bringing God's word and gospel to bear. We see it in Paul's relationship with the Thessalonian church. This is after just a few weeks of engaging them. Listen to what he says. We loved you so much that we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but also our own lives. How sweet is that? Full of affection, and yet... The word, of course, is being brought to bear. So friends, this is ministry. This is what your elders are calling you to do, but also what we're called to equip you to do. We can do a thousand things here at Faith Church. We do lots of really good things here at Faith Church, but if we're not discipling in the way that Jesus disciples, then we're not being obedient to the Great Commission. And I wonder whether you've seen this before. Have you been kind of involved in relationships like this? It can, of course, look different from person to person, right? There's no kind of one cookie-cutter shape we're trying to squeeze everybody into. And that's because discipling is not just another thing that we do. It's the way we do everything. It's more than a program or an event or a curriculum. It's the normal way Christians live life together. It's a radical ministry mindset. And what does this look like? Let me give you just a few glimpses. These are true stories without names. A new family has come to our church, and and after a few months, they become members. And uh, they're just a wonderful family, wonderful couple, and they come up to me after a service, and they say, hey, we've become members. We would love to serve at Faith Church. Is there a particular committee that we can kind of jump into? And I was like, well, thank you so much. Yeah, our committees do need you know, some help, of course, and and that's how our church is kind of organized and how we lead our church in some ways, but how about, uh, and I pointed them at this other couple, this young couple that was nearby that's maybe their third week at church. I was like, how about you take them out to lunch? I'll introduce you to them. Huh, okay, and so these guys met and took them out to lunch, and it turns out that their marriage was struggling a little bit, and so here's a couple that starts to kind of mentor this other younger couple, invites them to their community group, and so forth. A brother says to me after church, very similar, lots of these conversations, I enjoy them. This brother says to me after church, hey, someone at church wants to learn how the Old Testament relates to the Christian life. Uh, you know, I don't understand this Old Testament business. And, and so this brother says, hey, we should set up a class for them. And I said, hey, that's, that's a good idea. That's not a bad idea, right? Set up a class, teach them. But then I said, hey, how about you teach this brother that lesson? How does the Old Testament relate to the Christian and he says, you know, I, I guess I could do that, but I don't really know how. I, I need to understand that question. I said, oh, well, why don't you and I get together and I'll try to teach you that? And sure enough, we did that. And then a few months later, he opens up his own life, his home, and his time to this other brother and he teaches and mentors him. I can think of a tired mom who is growing irritated with her children as the hours tick by. And yet she takes time each night to share a few words of scripture and prayer over her young kids. And that's disciple making. One of our elders who caught sight of this vision, caught sight of the Great Commission several years ago, started reading the Bible one-on-one with a few of his siblings. Really interesting. I think it was over the phone or over Zoom. And he ended up leading one of them to, to Christ. They were converted. And there's just so many variations of this. You've got stories, I've got stories, right? But But, but here's the thing, friends. I'd rather have 300 church members engaged with each other and outsiders like this than 300 church members serving on committees and running programs and attending political rallies. Now, I'm not saying that events and programs are bad and wrong. I mean, we're going to have a a whale of a time, I hope, in October when we have our fall party, right, at a park. And yet, we can be doing a host of other things and not actually obeying the Great Commission. Okay, that's a lot of zoomed-in reflection. Let's quickly zoom out and think about the Great Commission. I want to show you how the Great Commission is more than you and me discipling like Jesus. There's a major corporate aspect to this as well. Consider this. Where do we see the Great Commission being fulfilled? Well, it's the book of Acts, right? What do we see in the book of Acts? How is the Great Commission fulfilled? Well, we see the apostles preaching the gospel. And they're seeing people from different nations respond with faith and repentance. And then what do these apostles do? They gather them up quickly into local churches where elders are then established to offer ongoing teaching, rinse and repeat. So friends, we're not just about making converts. We're also not just about making isolated disciples. We want to be about making disciples who gather up into local churches This is so important. So hear me now. When Jesus gives us the great commission, he tells us to multiply not only disciples, he tells us to multiply and plant and strengthen churches. That's what we see in the book of Acts. Jesus doesn't have in mind maverick disciple makers. You know, the great commission isn't just given to individual disciples. It's given, first of all, to the apostles who have a certain authority. And what do they do with that authority? They give away that authority to local elders and churches and congregations. And so we make disciples together with a local church under its authority and in partnership. You can think about churches as disciple-making factories. You know They offer things that no individual Christian can offer, kind of authoritative preaching with the gathered people of God and the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper and elders. So what do we do at church on Sunday mornings as we gather? Well, we hear the word, sure, but we also sing the word and pray the word and Display the word in baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are all things that disciple people, right? So every disciple maker needs a church, and every church needs to be filled up with disciple makers. You see that? Both are important. We disciple together. Jenny and I have a friend, Kelly. Um, Some of you have met her. She's Japanese. She grew up in Brazil. And she grew up in a very, uh, very non-Christian environment. And she moved uh, in her high school years to Portland, Portland, Oregon. And she was staying with a family who uh, were Christians and they were attending a great church. And uh, this family was praying for her and sharing Christ with her. And then she graduated and she ended up going overseas and she was a flight attendant. and She was uh, stationed in Dubai. And so this church and this family, they contacted some friends in this church called Redeemer in Dubai and uh, contacted a particular family and said, hey, can you bring in you know, uh, and then welcome uh, Kelly, and sure enough, they did that, and Kelly at this time wasn't a Christian, but she was kind of interested and open and exploring, and and she came to church, and over the course of several months, she became a Christian through the ministry of that church. She married a close friend of, of ours, and one of Faith Church's supported missionaries, Blaine Boyd, who I mentioned earlier. They've planted two churches by God's grace in the Middle East, and now they're here in the States. But I want you to notice who was involved in her disciple-making. There's a number of individuals, there's even family units, but there are also two churches, right? And it's so interesting, it's come full circle as, as disciples themselves, as disciples have caught sight of the Great Commission, they are doing the work now of making disciples and planting churches. All right, let's get to our last point here, resting in his presence. I want you to put your eyes on the last part of verse 20. And Jesus says, and remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So what is the mission of Faith Church? Jesus has called us to exercise his authority by multiplying disciples, but also churches. Now, I don't know about you as you kind of come to the end of this sermon, somewhat end, I got a couple more minutes. Give me a couple minutes here. As we come to the end of this sermon, I I wonder whether you find this task daunting. I certainly do when I think about this. I mean, we're, we're so busy, each of us, right? And sometimes we can barely get through diapers and emails. You know, okay, I can go to church, but Jesus wants me to disciple someone? Now, what if I don't know how to do that? How do I start moving towards people intentionally? These are all really good questions. And we're not going to fully get into that, um, but I would recommend two books to you. Okay, one book is called Discipling by Mark Dever. It's a little blue book. And the other book is called The Trellis and the Vine by Tony Payne and Colin Marshall. And that'll kind of help you, I think, just in a practical way to figure out what does it look like for me to take the next step as I'm trying to obey the Great Commission. But I want to point out how Jesus closes here. Notice what he says. He says, I am with you always to the end of um, to the end of the age so friends i want you to think about this because this is really this is really powerful the one who has all authority is always with you that great the one who has all authority there's no authority that's higher than Jesus's. if you're a christian he is always with you Jesus knows that we are hesitant just like his disciples are. We are fearful, we're inadequate, we feel weak. Sometimes we're unattractive to the world, but Jesus is with us always. Up until the very second that the last saint from the last ethnic group in the last generation enters the kingdom of God, Jesus will be with his disciple-making people. So I want you to take comfort in this. When our efforts are being rejected, when there's persecution, when our evangelism is not being received well, Jesus is with us. He will help us. If we pray, if we lean into his presence, we learn to abide in Christ, we can continue together to go after the Great Commission. Let me close by telling you about a church that did this. And I've shared this story, but it's been maybe, maybe four years now. About 160 years ago, a church in Chicago had a passion for making disciples, and I would imagine that their members had a personal ministry inside and outside the church, and they had these thick relationships where the gospel was presented and the scriptures were taught. People started coming to know Jesus and getting baptized within their doors, and people in this church started actively teaching those young converts, and men and women were growing, and then they were growing spiritually and and, and eager to help others grow spiritually. And guess What? Well, that church heard about this little country on the other side of the world that had no Christian presence, no gospel church. And they decided to send some of their best gospel workers on a boat across the ocean. Historians say it was a dangerous voyage. Fifty percent, perhaps, of those who stepped onto that boat would die of sickness either as they traveled or when they got ashore. So only half would survive. But these gospel workers, because they weren't committed to spreading the fame of Jesus, because they believed in the authority Of Jesus, they stepped onto that boat. They arrived in this little country filled with Hindu villages, and their aim was to share Christ and plant churches. And over the course of decades, hundreds came to know Jesus and were gathered into these little village churches. And in those villages, some of my relatives were converted. So this is five generations ago, and it began a legacy of faith that continues, of course, to this day. I am here as a disciple of Jesus. Because what God planned through Jesus actually worked. And friends, and friends, I want you to hear this. If you're a Christian, it's worked for you too. There's a long line of faithful men and women and churches who passed the gospel one by one down through history. And in that line, as it expands like a web in different directions, in that line is you. You know, centuries ago, ages ago, Abraham saw a sky that would be filled with stars, and God would say to him, You're going to have that many spiritual descendants. If you're a Christian here this morning, you are one of those stars, marked by the grace of God and the faithfulness of a few. You see, God's strategy works. And I wonder, I wonder how will that line that has stretched out to us, how will that line stretch out from you and from me and from Faith Church? Who will come to know Jesus through our gospel work? Who will we pass the faith on to? What churches will be planted? What churches will be strengthened as a result of our investments? Our mission is to joyfully exercise the authority of Jesus by multiplying disciples and churches here in the U.S., but also abroad. So, brothers and sisters, how are you going to be involved with this? Let's take a moment now to silently ponder this passage and message.